Recently, we've been looking at 1 Corinthians together, and we've been looking at that letter as a church family, and since about a third of the family is away today at the ladies' retreat, we're going to pause in our study of that letter and pick it up again next week when they're back. And what we're going to do this morning is to look at a passage which helps us with some of the things we've been hearing in 1 Corinthians. We've seen over recent weeks that the Corinthian church was having serious trouble. And one of the ways they were having trouble was with rivalry and division amongst themselves. Rivalry and division that came from their own pride, their desire to be in a high position. And Paul has been calling them in the letter to live differently than that. And the very last verse we looked at last week He gave them a reason why they can live differently. First, he listed a whole bunch of sins that used to characterize the lives of these Christians. And then Paul said, that is what some of you were, but you were washed. Paul believes something has happened to the Corinthians that means They are not what they used to be. Sin used to be normal for them, but it's not normal for them anymore because they have been washed. Now, what does he mean when he says they have been washed? Well, that's what we're going to think about in our time together this morning. So if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we're going to read an incident from Jesus' life which explains the washing Paul is talking about over in 1 Corinthians. So John 13, it's on page 1081 in the church Bibles, or in the larger print Bibles, 1673. John 13. And we'll read verses 1 to 30. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. 
Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was very troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at each other at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. This is God's word. And there are two pretty clear sections in this passage. The first one centers on Jesus and Peter. And then the second on Jesus and Judas. But it is all one incident. And it takes place on the last evening of Jesus' life on earth. If we were to read on, we'd find that after this, Jesus continues talking to his disciples. Then in chapter 18, he is arrested, then questioned and tried during the night, and the next day he's crucified. So this is his final meal with his disciples. And the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also tell us about this meal, but they focus on the meal itself and what Jesus said about the significance of the meal. John chooses to focus on what happened at the start of the meal and its significance. And in verses 1 to 17, we're shown that Jesus' love washes us clean. Verse 1 tells us this incident is all about Jesus' love. We're told it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew The hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
He loved them to the end. So right away, we know everything Jesus is about to do and say will have great significance. He's always known that this hour would come. That's why he came into the world in the first place. To bring salvation by dying on the cross. That purpose of Jesus' life was announced way back in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. As John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now it's time for his sacrificial death to happen. It's only a few hours away and we're told what we are about to see is Jesus loving his disciples to the end. John likes to use phrases that can have more than one meaning and this is one of them. The previous version of the NIV translated it as he showed them the full extent of his love. If you're using an older NIV you'll see that and that is an accurate translation. But the phrase can also accurately be translated, he loved them to the end. So which is it? I think it's probably both. That often happens in John's Gospel. He likes to convey a couple of things all at once. And so here we have Jesus loving his disciples to the end. Even as he knows the cross is only hours away Sinclair Ferguson says, here we have proof that his love never fails. It never falls. It never ends. It lasts even in the face of death. Even as the shadow of the cross looms over Jesus, with all the agony that's going to come along with it, Jesus carries on loving his disciples to the end. And in what happens next, he is going to show them the full extent of his love. The context here is a meal. And the contrast between verse 3 and what follows verse 3 is very striking. Verse 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So here is the ruler of the universe... Secure in the promises and the provision of his Father in heaven. And what does he do? Verse 4. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This was something that normally happened before a meal got started. And this was also the job of a slave. But in verse 2, John has told us this meal has already started. And that means none of the disciples fancied doing this slave work. In fact, the other gospel accounts tell us they spent part of the meal arguing about which one of them was the greatest. So none of them, in that frame of mind, is going to give ground by taking the lowest position. Down among everybody else's smelly feet. If you remember back to 1 Corinthians, the church members in Corinth had a similar attitude. They wanted to be honored. They wanted to have the highest place. Jesus' disciples were no different. 
Here in John 13, Jesus has waited until the meal is underway. And so now it's clear. None of the disciples are going to serve the rest in this way. And then he, the most honored guest at this meal, the teacher, the Lord, he gets down among the feet. One writer says, by getting down on the floor, Jesus is enacting the story of his incarnation. Remember how Paul described the incarnation in his letter to the Philippians. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus did that initially by laying aside all the majesty he had in heaven. To be born as a human being in an animal's feeding trough. To poor parents. Then to grow up as a carpenter in the back end of nowhere. And Jesus does it here on the night of his own death. In love, the Lord of the universe does the work of a slave. And this isn't the end of it. Tomorrow we know Jesus will humble himself further still. All the way to death on a cross. So the incarnation is the story of divine love that stoops further and further and further down for our good. Jesus takes the basin and the towel and he works his way around the group. Maybe the other disciples are lost for words, but not Peter. As usual, Peter has plenty to say at the end of verse 6. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And at that point, at those words from Jesus, we realize Jesus is no longer talking just about scrubbing feet. John's gospel is full of examples where Jesus talks about everyday things in order to picture greater realities. For example, back in chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Meaning... You need new spiritual life. In chapter 6, Jesus said to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Meaning, I'm the source of this new life that you need. In chapter 8, Jesus stood up in Jerusalem and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you get the idea. Jesus talks often about normal, everyday things like birth and bread and light to teach about eternally significant things. And here in chapter 13, we have another example of that. This foot washing points to a far greater washing Jesus is going to perform. His death on the cross will be a cleansing sacrifice for his followers. It will wash them, not just on the outside, it will make them clean to the very core. They will be spotless and guiltless in the sight of Almighty God. 
That's what Jesus means when he says to Peter in verse 8, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter is a proud man. He wants Jesus to do impressive things. So then Peter can bask in a little bit of the glory that comes Jesus' way. Peter doesn't want a saviour who gets down on the floor and does the work nobody else wants to do. Earlier, when Jesus had first mentioned his upcoming death on the cross, Peter wasn't keen on that either. Mark's Gospel tells us Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him about his plan to submit to death. No, Jesus, I want an impressive saviour. So maybe I can look impressive too. As we've looked at 1 Corinthians, we've seen that God's way of salvation always defies our human pride. That's what Peter has to learn, and we all do. Trusting in Jesus isn't going to elevate us in the eyes of this world. Pinning our eternal hope on a crucified Lord... That's not going to bring us much glory in this world. But it's the only way to be washed clean. It's the only way to know and experience the cleansing love of God. Peter's been given that message. And in response, again, typically of him, having utterly refused to have his feet washed by Jesus, now in verse 9 he changes tack and says, well, scrub my hands and my head as well then. But in verse 10, Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. What does Jesus mean? Well, if you have a bath, you are clean from head to toe. And as you go through the day, you may get your hands dirty. In the Middle East at this time, you would certainly get your feet dirty, wearing sandals on dusty roads. Those specific areas of your body might need a scrub at some point in the day. But the bath you had means you don't need a total cleansing again that day. And Jesus' point is, when you trust in my death on the cross, you will be totally, deeply cleansed. You will never need another cleansing like that ever again. It is a once for all thing. But of course, as you go on in life, there will be specific sins you need to bring to me for cleansing. And isn't that our own experience? The New Testament assures us once we've come to Jesus, we don't have to wake up each day wondering if we're still saved from the guilt of our sin. Wondering if God still loves us today. Fretting about whether we still belong to him. Not at all. When Jesus washes us, we're properly washed. We're clean and forgiven. That is our status. It doesn't change. We don't go through life having to doubt our status. At the same time, because of our new status, when spots of sin appear in our lives, we want to clean those up. So we come to Jesus again, confessing those specific sins. Asking us forgiveness. We did that earlier in our service this morning. And as we do that, we're not doubting that Jesus' cleansing sacrifice is enough. 
We know we don't need another total cleansing. But we don't want to get comfortable with new grime in our lives either. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the church, you have been washed. So don't go back to splashing around in the dirt. Live differently now. And as we read on in John 13, Jesus shows the heart of what it means to live differently. He says, those who are washed by Jesus' love begin a life of love. Look at verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We said that Jesus' foot washing was pointing to an eternal washing. The once for all washing he would bring about at the cross as he dealt with human sin. And obviously, Jesus is not calling his disciples to repeat that ultimate cleansing. How could they? So then when he says, follow my example, does he mean we should literally get out the basins and the soap and all take our socks off? Is that what he means? Well, some Christians have taken it that way. And they do literally wash each other's feet. But I doubt that's what Jesus meant. For one thing, in a climate like ours, it's just not necessary. How many of you wash your feet before dinner? We don't do it because we don't need to. If we've had shoes and socks on all day, then our feet aren't grimy. Unwashed feet aren't going to ruin dinner parties for us the way they would in first century Israel. So how can we follow Jesus' command to do as he has done for us? Well, the key to answering that is to remember what we said at the beginning. Washing feet was the work of a slave. It was undignified. In order to do it, you had to lay aside your pride completely. It was sacrificial, unglamorous service. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. That's how we follow his example. So the application of this is not tied to feet. It's tied to sacrificial love. Love that lowers itself in order to serve. And so the question for me to ask is, if Jesus has washed me, and if he's done it by stooping all the way down to death on a cross, how then can I stoop to serve? At home, at work, with my neighbors, in the church, At home, if I'm a man, do I act at home like I'm the king of the castle? Or do I sulk if I don't get treated like the king? 
When I come in the house, do I expect to be served? Or do I come willing to serve? Even if I am tired. Do I sigh like a martyr if my wife dares to help me, ask me to help out? And if she's given up asking me to help out, do I refuse to notice the many little things I could do to help? At work, do I do the bare minimum, just the stuff that I have to do to get along? Or am I willing to help others even if I get no credit for doing it? If I have people reporting to me, do I treat them like peons, underlings? Or am I willing to find ways to serve them even as I manage them or organize them? In the church, do I waltz into the church expecting to be entertained? Or if I'm more spiritual, I might use the word fed. And being fed is a legitimate expectation when you come to church. It is. But is that the only reason we're here? Do we just come to receive? Or do we come to give as well? To give attention to others, to listen to them, to pray with them. Do we find ways to serve? And there are lots of unspectacular opportunities to serve in the church. Welcoming, setting up for the Lord's Supper, and those are only the official things. If we call Jesus not only our Savior, but also our teacher and our Lord, then it is unthinkable that we would stand aloof from humble service ourselves. If we've experienced the washing that came through his self-humbling, if we mean anything at all when we call him Lord, then we will find ways to put ourselves out for each other, won't we? even for those who can't pay us back by serving us in return. That's the message of the first part of our passage. The second part has a very different tone. Verses 1 to 17 have been very much a family conversation. But we've already been told not everyone in the room here is family. If you glance back to verse 2, it says... The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Notice we're not being told here that Judas has no choice in the matter. The devil prompted him. He did not propel him. Judas was not coerced to betray Jesus. No one put a gun to Judas' head. And down in verse 10, Jesus says, not every one of you is clean. And John explains what that means in verse 11. He knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said, not every one of you is clean. Now it seems that Judas has had his feet washed by Jesus, just like all the rest. There's no indication Jesus left him out. Judas has received the outward washing. 
He looks like he belongs in this family gathering. But he doesn't. According to Jesus, Judas has clean feet, but he's not truly clean. His heart is not with Jesus. Does that describe you? Do you look the part without truly belonging to the family? Are you here this morning, but your heart is still unwashed? Despite how you look on the outside, despite how well you seem to fit in, that's a dangerous position to be in. To be around the reality of who Jesus is, but not to submit to him as our Savior and Lord. To do that is to despise his love. And the warning of verses 18 to 30 is that We must not despise Jesus' love. You'll notice that verse 18 preserves a very careful balance. Here Jesus says, I know those I have chosen. So there's no doubt at all, Jesus is sovereign, even over Judas' rejection of him. Jesus is not taken by surprise by what Judas does. Remember, he came to earth to lay down his life. And yet... This passage as a whole insists just as clearly Judas is responsible for what he does. Judas wanted the 30 pieces of silver that he got for betraying Jesus. He valued the silver more than he valued the Savior. And this is a balance we will find preserved all the way through the Bible. God is sovereign, we're told. He's genuinely in control. But his sovereignty does not do away with human responsibility. We all do what we want to do. And we're rightly held responsible for it. We are not pre-programmed robots. God is sovereign and human beings are responsible beings. The Bible does not try to resolve our questions about how both those things can be true at the same time. It simply insists they are both true at the same time. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility. And our genuine choices do not diminish God's sovereignty. And that double truth is seen most clearly in the events around Jesus' death. We're about to see it here. Jesus knows what's in Judas' heart. In verse 18, he quotes from Psalm 41. A literal translation is, He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. To share someone's bread was to share close fellowship with them. It was to be given a welcome. Sharing a meal was a sign of friendship and belonging. And in contrast to that, to lift up your heel against someone, that was to treat them with utter contempt. So can you see the contrast of this passage? Jesus, what has he just done? He's washed everyone's feet, including Judas' feet. Jesus has performed that humble service of love, and he's about to show the full extent of his love by dying on the cross. 
And Judas, what does he do? His feet have been washed by Jesus, but he is about to show Jesus the bottom of his foot. He is about to scorn Jesus and his sacrificial love. But even now, Jesus reaches out to Judas one more time. We'll see that in a moment. But at this stage, the rest of the disciples, they're shocked when Jesus mentions being betrayed. Look at verse 22. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. It might help us to realize, as we're visualizing this, Jesus and his disciples are not sitting at a table here with their legs tucked under it. They're reclining on their sides around a low table with their heads nearest the table and their legs extending out behind them, away from the table. So their bodies are a bit like spokes in a wheel with the table being the hub in the middle. Now we know the disciple whom Jesus loved was John, the man who's writing this gospel. And we might wonder, well, is this favoritism from Jesus? Doesn't he love all his disciples? Why single out just one of them? Well, remember, this is the title John gave himself. So rather than being evidence of favoritism from Jesus, rather than being a suggestion Jesus only loved one of his followers, this simply shows how much John was personally amazed to be loved by Jesus. The sense of this is, Jesus loved me, John. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. The Apostle Paul was similarly amazed. In his letter to the Galatians, he spoke about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Charles Wesley was equally overwhelmed when he wrote, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? He caused his pain? For me? who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And when that truth dawns on you and me, doesn't it give us that same kind of wonder? That Jesus didn't just die for people, he died for me. In all of my silliness, my stubbornness, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. John was able to feel the thrill of that. The wonder that comes from a personal experience of Jesus' love. And amazingly, here in this passage, Jesus then turns to Judas with one last offer of that same love. We noticed earlier to share someone's bread was to share close fellowship with that person. It was to be welcomed as part of the family. And verse 26 tells us 
With his own hand, Jesus holds out a piece of bread to Judas. Bruce Milne comments on this. The gift of a titbit by the host at such a meal was a mark of special favor. Thus, even as he unmasks the traitor, Jesus reaches out to him in a final, astonishing act of loving friendship and appeal. Yes, Jesus has just said, the one I give the bread will betray me. Yes, he quoted from Psalm 41, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But that still doesn't alter the fact sharing his bread with Judas is an offer of love. Judas is being offered that same love that amazed John and Paul and Charles Wesley. This piece of bread is not like the black spot in Treasure Island, if you know that story, where Blind Pew puts a black spot of paper into Billy Bones' hand. That was a death sentence. We're coming to get you at 10 o'clock tonight. That is not what Jesus is doing when he hands Judas the bread. It's not a threat or a death sentence. The bread is an offer of love and fellowship. If Judas is going to betray Jesus, it will be in defiance of Jesus' love. But, Bruce Milne goes on to say, Judas, in a final act of defiance, closes his heart against the light and turns away into the darkness that has no end. And John tells us in verse 30 that it was night. He doesn't just mean it was the end of another day. He wants us to see, in turning away from Jesus' love, Judas is heading into deep, eternal darkness. We must not despise Jesus' love because those who do despise his love turn away from life. Sometimes people say, well, if I'd been there when Jesus was on earth, if I'd heard his teaching, if I'd seen his miracles, if I'd seen him looking into my eyes and calling me to himself, I would have committed myself to him. But look at Judas. He was there. He heard. He saw. He was in the closest circle of those who knew Jesus. Jesus looked into his eyes. Jesus called him in love. But Judas despised Jesus' love. So don't make excuses about your situation here and now. Jesus calls you now. The offer to you is just as direct as it was to Judas. Just as direct as it was to Peter when Jesus said, let me wash you. Jesus offers you his cleansing, everlasting love. So don't make excuses about God's sovereignty. 
Don't make excuses about if only I'd been there in the upper room in Jerusalem, then I'd believe. Jesus came once for all time. He's been careful to preserve eyewitness accounts of that once for all coming. And his once for all death for sin. He preserved those eyewitnesses accounts for your sake. Don't despise his love. Humble yourself before him. Receive his washing and live. Let's respond to what Jesus has done as we sing to one another and in praise to him, come and see.